As you know, I love telling you about Steel Products, S-T-I-H-L. You can find a plethora of great steel products at SteelUSA.com. Again, that's S-T-I-H-L. SteelDealers.com is where you'll find more than 10,000 dealers around the country. One of the great things about going to a a steel dealer is you are going to get hands-on help and advice to help you get the job done right. Knowledgeable advice, product demonstrations, protective apparel, product registration, Trained technicians when you go to an authorized steel dealer. And again, there's more than 10,000 around the country, so there's one in your neighborhood as well. They're an award-winning company. They have award-winning products. They are truly, this is not hyperbole, they're the best, and they want to give you more than just the right tools for the job. They want to make sure you have the advice you need, again, from people that you can trust. So go see them. Steel Dealers.com, S-T-I-H-L, Steel USA. This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast, Drew and Denver 7's Troy Rank on the NFL Playoffs, a Cowboys disaster. And it looked like C.D. Lamb and Prescott... It was like they had never played together. And an Eagles meltdown. To go from 10-1 and one to 1-done, one and done, I don't think Sirianni survived it. Where's Bill Belichick going? I think he ends up with the Cowboys, with if not Cowboys, the Falcons. And how about Todd Helton for the Hall of Fame? Until you really dig into the road numbers, his defense, and then you look at the overarching numbers, he, it's, for me, it's easy. He's a Hall of Famer. Welcome in, everybody, to show number 237. Glad, as always, that you're along. We're in the midst of uh, the greatest portion of the football season. The national champions were just crowned. Michigan, as you know, over Washington. You get some coaching changes. We'll touch on that momentarily. And you're in the midst now of the NFL playoffs. Now, the wild card weekend was a bit of a dud. I still was entertained, but it was a bit of a dud because five out of the six games were more or less blowouts. Pittsburgh didn't maybe get blown out in Buffalo, but it was a pretty one-sided game. I don't think uh, after the first few minutes the uh, end result was ever in doubt. There were some shocking losses, maybe none more so than the Cowboys, who had been unbeaten for the better part of two years at home in Jerry World, got blown out. They were down by 32 in the second half to Jordan Love and the Green Bay Packers. And the other shocker of sorts was Tampa Bay dismantling a seemingly disinterested Philadelphia Eagles fan. And apparently it's also the last we're going to see, well, the last we're going to see in football equipment of Jason Kelsey. And Jason Kelsey's a guy that uh, I think everybody, certainly in Philadelphia, but even nationwide, have come to know. You know, he and his brother Travis with you know New Heights, that great podcast they have, and and you see the great personality, but you also can tell what a leader he's been. Not to mention, obviously, a fabulous center, one of the all-time great centers. He's going to be a first ballot, should be a first ballot, a Hall of Famer. But it was sad to see him. Uh, you know. Lead the field. Everybody goes out. It's not always with the championship. We know that in baseball. We like to say, "Yeah, a great career ends on a on a ground ball to short, not a not a home run." That's the stuff that uh, Hollywood manufactures. But uh, it, it's uh, it it's hard to see a great career like Kelsey uh, come to an end. But seemingly it was time. But Philadelphia, they had been headed down this path for a while. And I will say this. And I rarely say this. I think it's uh, a phrase that I'm about to use that is overused when breaking down a football game. And that is, oh, this coach was outcoached, or that team looked ill-prepared, or that team looked disinterested. However, in watching the Cowboys play, watching the Eagles play, I think some or all of those characterizations apply. Philadelphia looked disinterested. Philadelphia looked like something's wrong internally and we can't rid ourselves of the stink that we've uh, gone through over the last month and a half of the regular season. And it certainly showed up against Tampa on the road. They were really never in that football game. And by the way, good for Baker Mayfield. 
This guy was highly drafted. I always admired Baker Mayfield because you've heard me say this so many different times. I love the guy who has a chip on his shoulder, good chip on the shoulder. And Baker Mayfield has that. And he seems like he's finally landed in a place where he can be himself, where um, he has been successful now and it's appreciated. So good for Baker Mayfield. And I think a lot of Buccaneers fans felt like, and maybe even the Buccaneers organization felt like, well, Baker Mayfield can be a veteran type of stopgap and we have to go draft a quarterback. Well, Baker Mayfield may be your answer now. Baker Mayfield has gotten you into the second round of the postseason. But back to what we were talking about with Philadelphia and Dallas. That was a shocker with Dallas. I mean, Dallas, truly you felt like this is the year that Dallas can make a lot of noise in the playoffs. And they've always been disappointing in the postseason. Everyone knows the narrative. I don't have to rehash it here. But to lose and lose in that fashion at home was a shocker. And they truly looked like they were outcoached. And it may, as of this taping on a Tuesday, Mike McCarthy still has his job, but it may very well cost Mike McCarthy his gig, just like the same thing with with Sirianni in Philadelphia. The performances um, were that bad, a singular bad performance in the case of Dallas and for Philadelphia. We've watched this unravel over the last six, seven weeks. They finished, what, one and six their last seven games, including the loss down in Tampa in the first round of the playoffs. Dallas, I mean, are you kidding me? And and uh, when you're the quarterback, you get too much credit. When you're the quarterback, you get too much blame. Dak Prescott didn't start well. The first interception was really a hell of a play. It wasn't an awful pass. The second pass um, was, you know, a bad read. And, you know, on the hook route, he gets picked off, and that gets returned as well uh, for a touchdown. You know, Prescott played you know, much better, obviously, in the second half, but the game was already over. As I said, it was a 32-point game. That was a shocker. And and Dallas looked like they were outcoached at every turn. And we'll see what becomes of it. We'll get into that with Troy Rank, with uh, some big-name coaches that are available, or at least certainly available, and maybe another big-name coach in Mike Tomlin could be uh, available. Obviously, the Original reference was to Bill Belichick. And that takes me to a a question. Who is it tougher to follow? Being Gerard Mayo in New England or in Alabama with Coach DeBoer taking over, coming from Washington? Which is a more difficult follow-up? You're you're following two legends. Um, I, I think you can say somewhat without argument that the greatest NFL coach of all time is Bill Belichick. So so Mayo is following Bill Belichick in New England. And I think you can say, even with less of an argument against, that Nick Saban, with all his national championships, including the one at LSU, the greatest college coach of all time. And for me, the answer to my own question is very easy. It's Alabama. Alabama is a tougher follow-up for Coach DeBoer because Alabama and their fans, there is win a championship, as in a national championship, not just an SEC championship, win a national championship where the season was a disappointment. That's it. And every year, Nick Saban was in position to win a national championship. Even the year or two where they were not in the Final Four, now now there's 12 teams, so you can can write in, in ink, that Alabama will be there. New England, they don't have a quarterback. And we'll, we'll talk more about this with Troy. And this is not a revelation here. You gotta have a quarterback in the NFL. You have to. You must. It's about talent. And in college, you have more of an opportunity to pick your talent. But in New England, they've been down for a few years. And so for Gerard Mayo, he's taking over. Yes, he's following the legend of all legends of NFL coaches. And all the Super Bowl appearances and the Super Bowl Lombardi Awards or Lombardi trophies that that the Kraft family has in their facility. 
but they're down right now and they don't have a quarterback. So next year, if New England goes, you know, eight and nine, a lot of people say, hey, good job, Coach Mayo. That wasn't bad because they don't have a quarterback. At Alabama, the bar is so damn high, you can't see it. And if there's any drop off at all, you go 10 and three at Alabama, you make the college football playoff, which again, should be a foregone conclusion now at 12 teams, and you lose in the first round or maybe even in the second round. Those folks down there will be planting a for sale sign on your lawn. Maybe not in year one, but in year two. And you better be winning in the offseason when it comes to recruiting. They want to see all the five stars and the rest of them, baby, you know, got to be four stars. And they don't want to see people in the portal leaving Alabama, leaving Tuscaloosa. It, what Coach DeBoer is tackling is far more daunting than now Coach Mayo is tackling in New England. I thought uh, that this would be a perfect opportunity. I always love chatting with Troy Rank on, on a variety of subjects. You see him all the time when he was covering the Rockies, naturally. And, you know, we coached our, our kids uh, at various times together and against uh, one another. And um, so it's always good to talk to Troy, but also to get his perspective on football because he's been, be, uh, become a, a, you know, a full-time football guy the last uh, decade covering the Broncos. And he does it exceptionally well now for Channel 7 after uh, being at the Post for so many years. And you can follow his podcast and he puts out a ton of stuff on, on social media to keep you abreast of not only what's going on at Dove Valley, but what's going on throughout the league. And so I thought this would be uh, an apropos time to uh, to kick it around with Troy after the opening week of the NFL playoffs, get his observations, get his thoughts on what he saw, predictions on what may take place um, in different uh, NFL cities in terms of coaches, and also naturally what's going on at the Valley, specific to quarterback and specific to uh, Sean Payton as uh, they move into year two in the Sean Payton life as Bronco coach, right? Something along those lines. So anyhow, here's Troy, and uh, we get right into football, folks. Well, Troy, a plethora of uh, topics to to get into. And before we uh, talk about the local scene a little bit, one out of six games was competitive this weekend in the uh, in the NFL, and that was a great one, the, the Lions' victory. And I think um, for most people, we'll start there. I think for most people, man, you got who doesn't like Dan Campbell, and who didn't feel good for the Detroit Lions in their fan base, right? Yeah, I mean, I was just in Detroit with the Broncos played there. That city's on fire for that team. That was the loudest crowd I heard all year. With all due respect to Kansas City, I mean, again, it's an indoor outdoor stadium, but. They are so into that team. They're so easy to root for. And, you know, Dan Campbell, I got to know a little bit last year at the owner's meeting. I mean, he is just, he's a guy you want to play for. And I, I get the original impression of, you know, can this guy really coach this way at this level? But there's complete buy-in, man. And the way the players play for him, is it's fantastic. It's a great story. And they're a really fun team to watch. I mean, their offense is so dynamic and fast with Gibbs and St. Brown and, you know, Goff at home is just a different animal. They're a fun team. They're a fun team. And that was clearly the best game. The other one's kind of like, you know, I, to be honest, man, I was disappointed. The playoffs are what I look forward to, especially having covered the Broncos. And <laughs> the playoffs, I look forward to seeing those better teams. The Broncos haven't been one of them. But, yeah, the playoffs this year have been kind of a downer. Bigger disappointment, Troy. I mean, this is the nationwide question to all that follow the NFL, even in a casual manner. Bigger disappointment, the Dallas Cowboys basically getting blown out at home when they had, and rightfully so, uh, lofty uh, expectations and aspirations, or the Philadelphia Eagles, who just a month and a half ago were 10-1 and and had played months earlier in the Super Bowl. Yeah, I would say Dallas, just because they were undefeated at home, Drew, and they were a favorite, and you're playing the youngest team in the playoffs since 1974. And it's all about winning big games with McCarthy and Dak, and they just cannot get over that hump. And so that surprised me. I thought it would be a good game, but I just assumed at some point Dallas would win. But Dallas can't stop anybody in the run right now. And Dak, unfortunately for him, plays some of his worst games in his biggest games. Eagles, they to go from 10-1 and one to 1-done, one and done, I don't think Sirianni survived it. I don't think either one of them survived as head coach, but 
Sirianni, it, it reminded me of watching Hackett team with the Broncos with finger pointing, lack of tackling, lack of interest, questionable effort, you know, guys not being put in position to succeed. I mean, that is alarming what has happened in Philly to go from, you know, a team that probably, you know, could easily could have won the Super Bowl last year to all of a sudden Steichen leaves and you lose Gannon and it just looked like completely different scheme, completely different team. So, but the biggest shock for me was Dallas. Just they were undefeated at home. They averaged at almost 40 points a game at home. I knew they would give up points, but I never thought they would get boat raced. I mean, when they were down with 27, nothing, I mean, it, it was just like, wait, what? They were down, they were down by 32 points at one point. Yeah. 32. And then the start and it looked like CD lamb and Prescott, it was like they had never played together. Miscommunication and looking at each other like, what are you doing? No, what are you doing? I'm like, and see, CD isn't that kind of diva receiver. So it was like, what is going on here? And just uh, both teams just gave off a really bad vibe, particularly Philly, but both teams and some of it in Dallas, the pressure, they have unrealistic expectations because they're Dallas, but they still, that's a game I expected them to win. Hey, Troy, this is overstated uh, typically. And I mentioned this earlier though. Philadelphia, to your observation as well, they truly looked like a team that was disinterested, that had something going on, did not, from a body language standpoint, and certainly from a performance standpoint, didn't look like they have their focus. Now, it's always easy in the aftermath to make those kinds of accusations, but it was it was right there for for even you know a neophyte in observing body language to see. Yeah, where you see it in the NFL is when guys don't want to tackle, guys don't want to they, they short arm passes, they start making business decisions for lack of a better expression. And I saw that last night. I mean, I get Philly secondary is stunk for weeks, but the angles and just lack of interest in getting involved in any kind of physicality, the, the front line. Fletcher Cox and, and Graham, you know, had a few good series, but ultimately Philly's defense was bad and just the effort was questionable. And then offensively, it just looked scheme related that once Jalen Hurts stopped running the ball with any consistency, it was like watching, you know, Russell Wilson last year under Hackett where you're like, man, Jalen Hurts, how good is he from the pocket? And he's not great and he's terrible against the Bliss and they didn't have an answer for it which is odd because every time he faces the blitz, he's bad. You know they're going to blitz you. I just never get over this fact of our scheme, we, we worry about us, not the other guys. like, okay, but when they do certain things, you're terrible. Do you have a plan? And other than Devontae Smith, it looked like they had no plan for anything. Yeah, and I don't know if A.J. Brown would have changed that. It just There was something, there was a stink from the last quarter of the season, and it dragged right into the postseason, and... Some could make that same argument that Kansas City was suffering the same sort of malaise, but they got it right in the postseason. They looked energized. They looked like they had gotten whatever it was out of their system from late in the season, and they played a Kansas City-like Chiefs game, albeit against, uh, you know, in their kind of weather versus a team that, you know, probably not going to play well uh, in the uh, weather pattern that they had to uh, endure in, in talking about Miami going into Kansas City when it was 30 below. Yeah, one thing they benefited from, Drew, this year, for just me watching it, having watched the Chiefs since 2014, this is clearly the best defense they've had since I've been back, you know, covering the NFL since 14. It's clearly the best defense Patrick Mahomes had, and they finally have kind of understood their identity that if we don't turn it over and we kick field goals, especially home, we can win certain games. Now, they're going to have to score more points against Buffalo, but I guarantee you they're preaching like our defense, we can win 20 to 17. We can win 23, 20. And that was never the case. It was always been, if you don't score 30 against the Chiefs, you got no stop. And they're not that team because they don't have the receivers. Rice has gotten better as the season's gone on, but they lead the league in drops. Kelsey has come way back to the pack this year, not only with drops and just the way teams defending because they're not concerned with other receivers beating them. And Mahomes' overall numbers are pretty pedestrian, but when Pacheco runs the ball and they play defense, as you know, you've done this longer than I have, you can win in the NFL in the playoffs if you run the ball and stop the run. It gives you a chance. And that's why when we talk about Dallas, they can't stop anybody on the ground. The Eagles defense can't stop anybody. It is so hard to win 
in December, January, and February, if you can't stop the run or do one thing exceptionally well, and the Chiefs, I mean, I know it's crazy for people to think, but their defense is exceptional. I mean, they might have the best defense left in the playoffs, and that's what gives them a definitely a puncher's chance in Buffalo. I like Buffalo in that game. But Buffalo has red zone issues, and Buffalo lets teams hang around. And is this the year they finally, you know, figure out how to step on Kansas City's throat? I don't know. I mean, the fact that it's home, this is Mahomes' first, if you can believe it, first road playoff game. So I'm curious to see how they play. But if Buffalo doesn't get off to a, a decent start, it could get real greasy for the Bills because now the pressure's all on them. Yeah, um, I, I like how you summarize that, and it is amazing that Pat Mahomes has never played on the road other than a Super Bowl. Uh, I will say this, similar to Buffalo, Kansas City has not finished drives this year. I mean, we've seen more, more of Butker than than anybody else at times with um, with Kansas City. They need six, not three, in going to Buffalo. They really do. And Josh Allen has caught, caught fire at the right time. I think that's the most intriguing matchup next week. Let me pose this question uh, for you. You can't take San Francisco. You can't take Baltimore. This is the classic talk show uh, question. Who do you like? to win it all if you cannot have one of the uh, one seeds in each conference? Um, and I would definitely say in the AFC, it's Buffalo. They're the most dangerous team right now. I mean, again, <laughs> the fact they haven't won a Super Bowl, and I understand the history, trust me, but they're just they're dangerous. Now, the injuries, you know, they lose a linebacker again last night. I mean, they are dealing with a lot, um, losing Milano early in the year. I just – they are – everything's working. I mean, it's the complete – buy-in, hot team with a great star quarterback, so I really like them uh, to get through. And I would love to see Detroit. Love to see Detroit. I don't know that they could go and win at San Francisco. That doesn't feel realistic to me. But if somehow Green Bay upsets San Francisco and Detroit is hosting, then I I would love to see Detroit-Buffalo would be the ultimate underdog Super Bowl. Yeah, that that would be something. I'm with you. I mean, Buffalo – uh, is playing really well. They're playing at home. They have a distinct home field advantage, and you know from covering the sport, there are difference differences home field to home field, and that is one of the great home field advantages. Just like Detroit now, getting next, another game at Ford Field. I've done you know games at Ford Field. I, I mean that place can can really uh, rock and roll. Um, it, it's going it's going to be fun, and it also has taught us that especially now at the season 17 games, and this was true what I'm about to say when it was 16 games, every team is going to go through a period, um, even if they're elite, where they don't look particularly sharp. We saw that earlier from the 49ers. We saw it you know, with the aforementioned you know, Kansas City Chiefs. Obviously, Philadelphia never came out of it. We saw it with Buffalo. Also, you cannot make you know, sweeping statements about a team if they don't play particularly well for two or three weeks. Yeah, it's just, but, and, and credit to those teams, because usually there's two things that happen in the NFL when teams go into a funk. Injury related, like San Francisco was missing its best players when they went into their three game funk. Trent Williams was out, Debo was out, Purdy wasn't playing well, was, was hurt a little bit too, probably had a concussion, shouldn't have played that next game after, whatever. But Buffalo chain, when they, they fired their offensive coordinator after losing to the Broncos, Dorsey out, Brady in, and they decided and figured it out. Like, we got to run the football. Honestly, if they hadn't benched Dalvin or Cook, not Dalvin, but James Cook against the Broncos, they would have beaten the Broncos. He fumbled the first play of the game, and then we didn't see him for three quarters. And they still ended up rushing for like 175, 180 yards. But Buffalo finally realized we can't ask Josh Allen to play high school Harry here and lead us in passing, touchdowns, and rushing. Like, it's not feasible in the NFL to win that way. I don't care how good Josh Allen is because ultimately he's going to make a mistake or two, and then you turn around and blame him. No, run the football. But you're right. With the course of the season now, injuries play such a huge element, especially when teams are hurt. I mean, if you end up like your best players are hurt, you're going on the road, and you saw it with the schedule with the Eagles, the schedule wore them down where it was like they were what? It was like Kansas City, then they played Buffalo, they played Dallas. Like they had like these three, four games in a row, and they treated them like their Super Bowl. And when they came out of it, they were hurt and stopped playing defense. <laughs> they just stopped playing defense. So you're right. I mean, the Broncos had a chance to become the the fifth team ever to start one and five and reach the playoffs. They had a realistic chance if they went out in their final three games against 
interim coaches or backup quarterbacks or both in some cases and still couldn't do it. I mean, the length of the schedule, you can't fake it anymore. It does feel a little like MLB with that 17-game schedule. Like There's just no no faking your way into the playoffs in a 17-game schedule. That's why one of my favorite lines of all time, and there's so many out there in the sports world, Bill Parcells, you are what your record says you are. You know, the whole woulda, coulda, shoulda thing. Bill Belichick is coach of? I think he ends up with the Cowboys, with if not Cowboys, the Falcons. But the Cowboys, if he can deal with Jones's, Jerry Jones's, you know, obnoxious behavior and pressers and radio stuff for two years, he wants to get that all-time record. I think he wants, he needs 16 wins to pass Shula. Sounds yeah. like there might have been a little acrimony there at the end between those two men. I don't know exactly, but from people I've talked to, they do really a motivating factor for Belichick to continue coaching because he has nothing left to prove. He's going to be considered the greatest NFL coach of all time because of the Super Bowls. Like no one's going to be anywhere near him ever, I don't think. But if he could deal with that, the Cowboys are a team that, you know, always leading penalties and choking big games. Well, that's where you could look at Belichick if he has the right offensive coordinator with Prescott and say, hey, you know, can he get us into the fact where we can win when it matters most and play our best when it matters most. But, you know, could Bill deal with Jerry for a couple of years and do that? I could see that. Atlanta has the best young talent. The problem is they don't have a quarterback. Is that we're dealing with in Denver here again, where they're faced with a chance of having their 14 different starters and face Manning. It's impossible to win in this league without good quarterback play. It doesn't have to be from a, a, a star or high profile. It can be young. It can be a vagabond guy who re- resurrects his career. But you can't win, and that's why when I look at Atlanta for Belichick, he would probably have control over everything, which he would like. But who's his quarterback? He just lived it with Mac Jones and Zappi. But I think he ends up in Dallas or Atlanta. I know Philly's out there, and that that could be possible too. It just feels like, um, you know, and that's back east where he's obviously more comfortable. But it just feels like if he wants – to win now, it could be Dallas. The Eagles team's facing a lot of questions with cap issues, terrible defense. I just don't know if that's as appealing as people think it is. Perhaps, but one of those three, I think he gets the job. Between Cowboys, Eagles, and Atlanta, I think Belichick lands at one of them. Jerry Jones was, much to the chagrin of Cowboys fans, was extremely patient with uh, a guy I worked with a little bit in NFL Europe a lifetime ago, Jason Garrett. He was still playing then. Good guy, smart guy, but he hung in there a long time. Jerry Jones is 81. Something tells me, even though he has great respect for Mike McCarthy and he won 36 regular season games, you know, Jerry's he, he's looking at his mortality, perhaps, and saying... I have an opportunity to take Bill Belichick potentially and have him deliver me that elusive championship. Uh, I'm with you. Mike Tomlin is a fascinating case. 17 years without a losing season. He's a Hall of Fame coach. Uh, You know, he is played for, to me, the best owners in the NFL historically, and that's the Rooney family. Does this continue, Troy? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, there's been a lot of smoke around him, the idea he could take a year off. I mean, he takes a year off, he'd be hired for in, in broadcasting within moments. I mean, he would be out of work for like two minutes before somebody, whether it's Fox, whether it's ESPN, somebody, you know, pick a pick a network. They would love to have Tomlin on. So I could see him taking a year off like Sean Payton did. And or, I mean, the one team there's been a lot of, interesting talk about is would he go to the commanders now i don't know with the adam peters hiring and the san francisco connections and you know all the offensive guys that have been in kyle shanahan's tree and tomlin doesn't seem to fit that you know what adam peters as a gm would be looking for but that's the one that was getting a lot of interest would he go to washington high profile coach never lost never had a losing season again the problem with tomlin is again it's not unlike what denver's dealing with they just they don't have really good quarterback play. So you have to win with no margin for error and they do it defensively, but then you get into the playoffs against better teams on the road. And it's not unlike how Denver finished its own season. Once you stop getting takeaways, you automatically lose because your offense can't carry its weight. And that's what Tomlin has been too loyal to some of his coaches, including Matt Canada. So I don't, if he stays, what are they, I mean, they're going to go with Rudolph and can he pick it? Like I just, I don't know. I bet the, yeah. Again, got, if he was anywhere else, 
they would have moved on by now. I think the Steelers are historically patient. They've had, what, three coaches in like 50 years between Noel, Cower, and Tomlin. It just, for me, about 10, 11 years is, a, is the max for an NFL coach in one place. So it wouldn't, I get was, you know, if you were objectively arguing, they'd be better off starting off with a Ben Johnson, an offensive line to reboot it. But man, everything else he brings would be so hard to, to move on from the culture, the respect he garners, you know, just the way he coaches. You feel like you're in every game. I mean, it's one of those, if you move on from him, what's your answer? And I think if they move, if I don't think they would move on from him, I think he would be asking, I want a year off or I need to take stock. I don't think they would fire Tomlin. I think it would be more like, you know what? I'm going to take a year off here. Or let's say he wanted to go to the Chargers, which I think Harbaugh gets that job. But if he wanted to take a year off, they would just say, okay, let's, let's have it happen that way. Not unlike the way Peyton did with the Saints a couple of years ago. Yeah, I, I I think, though, the bottom line, and we all know this, is you. I don't care who you are. Bill Belichick's gone through this the last few years. you got to have a quarterback. You have to. And I'm watching Rudolph play, and, and God bless him, but he's not the answer. Kenny Pickett, evidently, is not the answer. And I'm, I'm one who tends to lean toward being a little more patient with these young quarterbacks. But they don't have a guy. They don't have a guy. And Mike Tomlin is a you know, the cliche, he is a leader of men. His record there is, is phenomenal, given the fact that Ben Roethlisberger hung on too long. He hasn't had a quarterback in six, seven years, quite frankly. Um, I do want to ask you, I'd be remiss, before we talk a little baseball, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the aforementioned Russell Wilson. Is it a fate to complete that they move on for talking about the Broncos from Wilson, or are we sitting here having this conversation uh, on your podcast or my podcast next fall saying, yeah, well, you know what? They didn't have a better option, and, and Russ is the quarterback. Yeah, I just don't see the scenario right now where he would return. Now, again, the way it was handled, I'll give you both sides of it. One is, you know, the Broncos do business like every other NFL team during the bye week, and they had coached Russell in the summer, about this contract adjustment, essentially it's just saying, hey, you got $37 million due on the fifth day of the league year. Can we move that back? A year is what they wanted to do. Move it back a year. You come back to camp. You compete for the job. It gives us a chance, more salary cap room to win here. And in general, that would work with a quarterback if he's your guy. The problem was when they approached Russell and his agent about it, one, <clears throat> and then they would acknowledge this privately, Sean Payton should have had the conversation first with Russell Wilson, saying, Russ, I know we just beat the Chiefs, biggest win in eight years, but our offense stinks in the red zone. It's not what I expected. I'm considering a change. I'm just kind of man-to-man letting you know. Unfortunately, it's the bye week. Part, you know, People scatter, and so it's left to George Payton, the GM, to have the conversation with the agent with what the Wilson camp believes was the threat of benching the Broncos would tell you it was a creative solution to find a path forward for him to stay with the team. So why would he stay? He has a complete no-trade clause, and he knows the problem is, Drew, he knows Sean Payton doesn't believe in it. What would change over the next six weeks before March 17th? Because if he is going to stay, they would still want him to make a contract adjustment. Why would he do that for this team if he knows, number one, his coach doesn't believe in him, and two, he's got a market. I mean, at the veteran minimum, I could see him as a candidate in Atlanta, in Pittsburgh. I mean, there's at least going to be probably two to three teams that would say, maybe, I'm not saying Seattle, but let's say there's three teams that would give him a real shot shot to start, probably come in as the starter. He might have to be in, in a quasi, air quote, battle with someone. But in light of all that, I just don't see a path forward. Because even if they patched it all up, hey, Russ, sorry Sean didn't talk to you. Sorry it felt like a threat. You know, the benching, we we should have just waited till the last game of the season. We were officially eliminated. It wasn't all your fault, but we wanted to see Stidham. Even if all of that air got cleared, they're still going to want the tra- contract adjusted. I don't see why he would do it. What would be his motivation to do it to help them at that point if he believes there's a market? If he's 37, 38, and says, you know what, crap, I'll just stay here. I'll come to camp, and if it happens, it happens. If not, you know, but I just don't see a path forward with him. So that means it's Jared Stidham with possibly Jimmy Garofalo, Sam Darnold, Jameis Winston, or Stidham with a quasi-veteran and a Michael Penix, Bo Nick, J.J. McCarthy, uh, I think Pratt, the kid from Tulane. I mean, again, the pressure then now is squarely on Sean Payton 
to basically prove it's his system, not the quarterback. And he did do that in New Orleans with Jameis Winston, with Taysom Hill, and with Teddy Bridgewater. Can he do that in Denver? Because that it drove him crazy the way Russell Wilson ran his offense. Statistics aside, the goal-to-goal stuff and the inability to make the right checks at the line of scrimmage for Peyton, it, it drove him nuts. And, it, and again, I, Russell had a decent year. You had a, certainly a bounce-back year. But I would you cover you do all sports. It would be like if you have a point guard that wants to you know go run and gun, and your coach wants you to run the Princeton office and run the play. It's like it was just a philosophical disconnect. Russell's best up tempo, running around, making plays, coloring outside the line. Sean Payton is read the line of scrimmage, choose the right play between the two I give you, and one, two, three balls out. And I want to be in the middle of the field. That's not Russell Wilson. It's just not. And But are they better without him? That's the curious question. I mean, are they better without him with Jared Stidham next year? Are they better without him with Rando, Sam Darnold? I don't know that. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, yes, you do. Yes, you do. They're not They're not going to be – you know what? They're going to be similar. They're not going to be – that, That's my point. I could see him going 8-9 and nine again. Right. But is it worth blowing out Wilson to create $85 million in dead cap space over two years? That's why it's, it puts all the pressure on Sean Payton, and he loves it, frankly. He loves it. He loves his offense. He has complete confidence in his scheme. He believes that he can scheme it up for someone. More power to him, but I covered Shanahan. And when Shanahan lost Sean Elway, I mean, it's just you need a quarterback in this league, and it doesn't mean it has to be a high-profile guy. I get it. But whoever you bring in has got to be functional. I mean, and it's got to be in a way where you're a you know top 15-ish offense. You don't have to be great, but if you're – like they were in the bottom third in red zone, red zone rushing touchdowns, yards per – like all these things went against them once they get on inside the 20, and that's where if they don't improve there dramatically, how are they going to be better? And, I again, Peyton believes they will. That's his prerogative, and he certainly has the resume to suggest he could do it. It's just, man, he is really – put his chips in the middle of the table, that it's his offense, not the quarterback. Yeah. Uh, related to that, and you mentioned some of the quarterbacks that, you know, are not named, uh, you know, Williams or Drake May, um, or, or the kid from LSU, obviously. I have said, I think the Broncos should move down because one of the trio of quarterbacks that you did mention, Penix, McCarthy, the kid from Tulane, Bo Nix is a check down king. I'm I'm not so sure I'm in love with Bo Nix. Lo, lo, love that he plays with a chip on his shoulder. I love everything about him, but I don't know at the NFL level, but that's neither here, here nor, there, nor there. The Broncos have to take a quarterback, I would think, in the first or second round. Would you agree that they're probably better suited to moving down because they have such a, uh, you know, they only have six picks as, as we, you know, sit here today? Yeah, and the reason I would say that is, Talking to people that have played in Sean Payton's system, they just don't really believe that a rookie quarterback could come in next year and be the guy. So let's say it's Penix and he's dropping because of his medicals at the combine and you feel you can get him at, you know, 18 or 20 and pick up a second round pick. I mean, yeah, I mean, that makes total sense. Uh, DJ McCarthy, again, like you said with Nick, I like everything about the way the kid competes, but he's a game manager at the college level. They barely, I think they threw over 25 times once in their last, like, 11 games. But my point is, I thought he needed another year to develop, totally understand why he's leaving as a champion, especially the looks like Harbaugh's leaving as well. But there's no way he's going to start next year in the NFL for the Broncos. I just cannot see a scenario. So if it's McCarthy, is he sliding to where, like you said, you trade out of 12 to go to 16 and you take him? The curious thing about that for me, Drew, is if it's McCarthy, so that's, is Sean Payton going to be here five years? Because he's not going to win with McCarthy next year. Could he win in year three of Sean Payton? Is and then so that really puts that year four like man, that's saying you know the young quarterback figures it out. Our cap things are behind us. We've got it all set up. I just but you're I don't disagree with you. It's just the Broncos' way over these last eight years has been to try to you know to quote Taylor Swift put band aids on bullet holes. Let's move up. Let's figure it out. We're one player away, and they haven't been. They have not been one player away, and that gets proven every season that they're not. Now, again, if you got a great quarterback, that could you know make you feel like you're one player away. But even if they got all the way up to three and Jaden Daniels, do we really think Jaden Daniels 
is going to start from jump for Sean Payton in this offense? I just, I'm skeptical. I would love to see it, love to cover it. It would be fascinating. But to your point, if you don't think you're going to get any of those guys, and I would definitely not think move up to take Knicks in the top ten. Same reasons you said. He's checked down Charlie. I, I don't need to trade up for that and lose another draft pick. We only, you know, they only have six. So it, yeah. it's going to be fascinating to me because we don't know what Sean Payton wants. Does he like the kid Pratt enough? He saw him at Tulane. He knows everything about him. I'm sure his intel is great. You could get him probably in the early second, and you'd be better off, like you said, trading out to 18 or 19 and then picking up an extra second and getting your quarterback that way and picking up another second-round pick for a guy who's probably going to start for you, whether yeah. it's outside linebacker or, you know, pick a position corner. I mean, they, they have real needs. This team is not one or two guys away. They have at least three to four major needs, and they need to add speed, frankly. Yeah, that that's why, again, you're underscoring what I've said prior that that's why they need more than one play. I mean, if they were a quarterback away, like you could make the argument looking at Atlanta's roster, man, give them a quarterback. You know, even even with the defense that Pittsburgh presents, give them a quarterback and and things look different. The Broncos are more than just a quarterback away. Michael Penix is intriguing to me because of his ability to throw the ball with accuracy down down the field. He's got a big time arm. I am scared by his past. He is uh, you know, he, he's athletic enough that he can move a little bit. Um, but, you know, th- there are no sure things. I'm not, I'm sitting here right now. I've, I saw Caleb Williams play in person and you love what he does and the comparisons to Pat Mahomes. But I can't sit here definitively. No one can. Even even guys who study this for a living and say Caleb Williams is going to be a superstar. You You can't. Well, the NFL, just it matters so much to where you go because – I've learned from covering the league for the last eight years, it's just it's almost impossible for a player to overcome dysfunction, bad coaching, bad roster, one player. In college, you know, a guy can make a huge difference because he's so much better than the people around him. In the NFL, he's not. He's just not appreciably better to where you, he could come in and have – you saw it with Bryce Young with all – you know, the poor kid. But, yeah, he's fine. He's going to be the Steph Curry of the NFL. I'm like, why are you comparing him to that? It's so ridiculous because he doesn't do anything generational. But you traded his best receiver away. So you bring him in with no line, a coach that doesn't run his scheme that wanted C.J. Stroud. And you see, I mean, it looks like Bryce Young doesn't shouldn't even be starting, let alone the number one overall pick. But Caleb Williams has traits I love. But this year, watching him with Riley, it looked like daddy ball and, you know, being babied. And it looked like Lincoln was coaching him, not the team. And you cannot be like that in a pro locker room. It cannot be like that. It's the same concerns I have with Shadur at times, Sanders, that you're not the coach at the team when you're a quarterback, young quarterback in the NFL. You're not. You're playing with all men. It's their livelihood. They have family. You're not going to get preferential treatment. Now, if you win, like Russell won for, you know, seven, eight years, yeah, it, eventually you will to some degree. But if you think you're going to come in and take over a locker room as a you know young kid and be coached differently, you're not. You're not. And that would be my concern with Caleb watching him this year at Notre Dame. The body language, that this body language at different games of, and then this constant, I'm going to run backwards and throw the football. Like you can't do that consistently in the NFL. You can do it once in a while, hundred percent. But that cannot be your go-to, that I'm just going to run around 20 yards behind the line of scrimmage and make a play. It won't be there. And even if you could think you could do it, you may not have the weapons that get open in the league. Like, you can get it. But So, I, I like Williams. I would 100% take him number one. I know he's been working with Rich Gangarella, the former Broncos OC. I think that's good for him. He's just got to, for me, show he can be coached and not be in the structure. Like, I don't want him to play by paint by numbers. But he's going to have to run a pro offense, and it's not go up the line of scrimmage and make crap up every play. Like the NFL offenses don't work like that. And May didn't have a great year. He had a good year, to your point. Jaden Daniels, I love everything about him. He's not very big. He's not. I mean, and can he take the punishment? I mean, this idea he's going to run. Lamar Jackson, people don't realize, put on 20 to 25 pounds. And even he deals with injuries. But it's just the league is so much different than college. What makes guys successful in college, there's a reason it doesn't translate. It's because the level of competition, the system, the dysfunction of ownership and coaching, all that is such a challenge at the pro game when the 
the parity and the talent level is similar. You're not playing Akron. You're not playing, you know, Northern Colorado is on your schedule. You don't have any games like that. And that's why these young guys realize right away, like, holy crap, I have a weakness. Every defensive coordinator seems to it immediately. And they, yeah. they fall for every trap. They fall to every fan, you know, every bunker. They fall for every one of them. But, uh, yeah, I just, you can't predict it. And if you could, if you were that GM, obviously it looks like the Packers have figured it out. No other team <laughs> really has. Well, you make a lot of good points and one that I've always come back to. And you mentioned Shadur and fair or unfair, uh, you have to grow up quickly if you're going to be a quarterback, even of a major college program. And there were times this year where Shadur, there were times this year, clearly, as as you illustrated with Caleb Williams, where they were not mature. And I think of what C.J. Stroud said, and this kid's 22 years of age and, and he's taking the league by storm, but he's he's got his knee down in a huddle. And he's looking at not only guys that are that are considerably older than him and are truly professional, they have wives and children, and that's a different world. They don't want to see that kind of immaturity that we've seen demonstrated by the aforementioned guys. That doesn't work, especially on Sunday, and I would make the argument it doesn't work at the highest level. USC had a disappointing year, and some of that falls at the feet of Caleb Williams. Moving on to a sport that I know is very, very close to your heart and always will be, the game of baseball. Next Tuesday, we'll learn, hopefully, that Todd Helton is a Hall of Famer. In your travels, when people ask you who are maybe not as well-versed in the career of Todd Helton, and you covered him day-to-day like, like I did because you were on the beat uh, prior to moving over to the Broncos, what do you say to him or, or to, to her when they ask you, hey, tell me about Helton, and, and truly, was he a Hall of Famer? How do you respond, Troy? Yeah, I mean, for me, the Hall of Fame is that 10-year window you know, were you able to be one of the best players in the league over 10 years? And in Todd Helton's case, he was. And it, it is things that people don't really appreciate. If you look at his road numbers, his road average, his road on base percentage, his home runs on the road, it's all better than a lot of first basemen that are in the Hall of Fame. So, you know, the Coors Field creation thing is, in some ways is diminished because of Larry Walker getting in. But Helton, for me, was one of the toughest outs in baseball for a decade. A guy you couldn't strike out at times. He spoiled pitches. He was a, he could be a contact hitter. He hit for power for about six, seven years, huge power. And he was underrated as a first baseman. He won multiple gold gloves. He was an elite defender, saved how many runs with his ability to scoop. No one played the bunt more aggressively. You know, he was hurt by the fact he was on a lot of crappy teams. And he played at Coors Field, so it's easy to dismiss him. But until you really dig into the road numbers, his defense, and then you look at the overarching numbers. He, it's for me, it's easy. He's a Hall of Fame. You know, yeah. you just look at the overall numbers. He passes that test. But I would say for people that don't understand why, for me, it's easy. It's his road numbers and his defense. He was one of the best first basemen in the league the entire time he played. I mean, he wasn't J.T. Snow. He wasn't Derek Lee at times, but he was always in the top three at his position defensively. And again, he hit on the road. And it, all the Rockies great players did, and he and what, but he did. He was what, 287? And he was a really good, he would have been a Hall of Fame player for me if he played anywhere outside of Coors, because Coors screws him up, as you know. It hurts their road numbers because of how the game plays when they stay at home for a while and go back on the road. That's the easiest, that's the easiest, but that's the argument I make is, you know, look at his road numbers, look at his on base percentages, look at his defense, and look at his extra base hits. He's a Hall of Fame. Yeah, it, it, you know, the, the hay's in the barn, as the saying goes, 855 OPS, uh, to your uh, point, on the road, better than Dave Winfield, better than Tony Gwynn, better than George Brett by 29 points. That would shock some people. Uh, he he's a, he slammed the gavel down. He's a Hall of Famer, and I hope next week, uh, you know, we're celebrating the fact that Todd's in. And, and you know, good, good for the Rockies. They'll have two guys uh, in the Hall of Fame. Um, because they're they're finally overcoming also some of the not only East Coast bias but the the folks that don't understand um, that altitude giveth and taketh away as well. 
But if he doesn't get in, which I believe he will on Tuesday, who's the next? Nolan would be the next guy. But he, you know, at that point, I don't even know that he goes in as a Rocky. I'd be frankly surprised if he did. So, I mean, this might be their last guy for a long time. When would the next guy be? It would have been too low for me. He got hurt. He just didn't cross the finish line. He did the first, Matt Holiday, great career. He's just he's in that hall of really good. Who would the next guy be when you look at their their players? And who, I mean, it's not Blackman as great as he's been for the Rockies. He's not a Hall of Fame player. So if it's not Todd, the next one up would be Nolan. And that I get. I don't know that he goes in as a Rocky. I frankly, I would be shocked if he did. You bring up a great point. And I was going to ask you this uh, as I let you go, and that that is, you know, who would be the next guy? And you're absolutely right. Nolan Arenado is going to go to the Hall of Fame. Now, depending on how long he plays and, um, you know, does he go as a Rocky and, and it was a, a clunky departure, right? And, and clunky could probably be replaced by other adjectives, right? Um, and then I'm glad you mentioned Tulo because you and I both were there when Tulo was this brash young player and, and, you know, Dan O'Dowd immediately, he saw what kind of leadership characteristics and, and the competitor he was. He had Hall of Fame talent and I'll never forget the play when he, he pulled the, you know, his, his, uh, you know, hip flexor and it became a chronic type of thing. Those four guys for me, Hall of Fame talent. The closest next, Troy, would be Cargo. But again, he falls short. He he ends up in the Hall of Very Good, just like Matt Holiday. And we don't know who that next player is. Because I don't may, maybe maybe 10 years from now, you and I are doing this and we're going, man, that Nolan Jones, what a 10-year run he's put together. But Tovar would have, I mean, if we're just talking in this total yeah. hypothetical, he would have the best chance because of the position he plays. He plays both sides of the ball. Playing in out, you know, in Denver, he's going to put up good offensive numbers. But you know, at some point, you have to start making All Star games. Like that's the thing with people understand about Hall of Fame. You can be the best player on your team for a decade, and if you were on the All Star team twice, you're not making the Hall of Fame. Like you got to be finishing in top ten in MVP voting like four or five years. You got to be a five, six time All Star. You got to have awards. Now take away the postseason. That's that's great. You know that could certainly help if you're going. But you have to do things as an individual that distinguish you to make you like when they look back and say over the last decade he was one of the top players in the league. And I don't think people understand that. And that's why I mean I love voting for the Hall of Fame. I mean there's players that my God like Matt Holiday like feels like a Hall of Famer. He's just short. Jimmy Rollins I vote for him. He doesn't get in. You know, and I'd like, God, I mean, if he doesn't bet, he's just, you know, for a lot of people, he's just short. The Hall of Fame, it means the 1% of guys, and I just don't think people realize. And it usually has to be a decade of greatness to little good, maybe an eight year, eight, nine, ten. You can't have four or five good years and get on the Hall of Fame. It just doesn't happen in baseball. Hey, you know, Troy, I don't even know. Do you still vote? Do you still have a vote? Yeah, I do. Okay. Okay. How, if you don't mind, did you reveal it? I haven't revealed it yet. I'll put it out next Monday, but I voted for six guys. Helton certainly was on my ballot. Okay. Certainly. I mean, I voted, I voted for him every year. He's been eligible. Um, and I, I will be surprised if he doesn't get in. I think he would be the most votes. Like the only guy that's happy, his number of votes had not gotten in. Well, I think it was Kurt Schilling when Schilling basically told people not to vote for him. But, uh, I, I would be shocked if Todd doesn't get in this year. Adrian Beltre should get in for me. I, and he's an obvious Hall of Famer. For yeah. me, given his numbers, uh, but you know, again, the steroid thing complicates, and I understand all that. But Todd's on my ballot. I have six guys, and I'm really rooting for him. I, I stay in touch with Todd periodically, text him. Uh, I just, I would love to see him, and I, I would plan to be there. I think it's July 21st, even if it's during Broncos training camp, I would be. My plan would be to miss the day or two of camp if I had to to get out and see Todd. Yeah, uh, you know, I have a little thing called the major league season that gets in the way, but uh, I'm with you. I really, uh, I'd really like to be there, and I, I know, you know, Todd, who is, you know, self-deprecating and and likes every subject other than talking about himself. It it is a profound, as you know, it is of profound importance to him, and it also it means a lot to him because of the the memory of his dad, um, and you know, they had a. You know, like many people, they had a, you know, at, at times a, a relationship that 
you know, could be contentious, but he taught him the game. He knew the game. He was a former minor leaguer. You know the story. He grew up with Rod Carew in the minor leagues, and, and so much of the approach of, of Todd was passed on from his father and, and, and partially from his time with Rod Carew. And I know, you know, as a legacy to his dad, it would really mean a lot to Todd. Yeah, and, and just people on his – and I work with Hall of Famer Steve Atwater every week, and it just – it's life-changing, and they say it's not, but every signature you sign after that is HOF, and it and it puts you in a group that, again, is as selective you can be on this earth when it comes to sports. Yeah, Troy, tell tell everybody where they can find you. Uh, I, I obviously on Denver Seven, uh, but uh, you know you do a you do a regular podcast or podcasts as well. Tell folks where you, where they can uh, catch you. Yeah, I appreciate that, Drew. Yeah, the Broncos podcast with Troy Rank is my. I've got one up today. I usually they come out every Tuesday, Friday. There's always two year round, even during the off season. And then you can find me on Twitter at Troy Rank R E N C K Facebook uh, Threads. I'm on there now too. Uh, but yeah, uh, social media is a huge part of our job. And the podcast, I cannot thank Broncos Country enough. Given the way these last eight seasons have gone, the podcast continues to grow. The audience is there. The passion never changes. You know, I, I do hope for Broncos Country that this thing turns around. That's why I was happy to see the team beat the Chiefs, frankly, just for so many of my friends that are huge Broncos fans to at least eliminate the 16 game losing streak to the Chiefs, the seven game losing streak on Monday Night Football. So now it's you got an eight-year streak of no playoffs and a seven-year streak of losing seasons. Hopefully both those end next year. There is an insatiable hunger for Bronco material that has always been the case and will always be the case. So that's good. That, that is good for you. Hey, Troy, always a pleasure, man. Best to your family, and uh, we'll, we'll do it again soon, man. Appreciate it. You got it, dude. Thanks for having me on. Talk to you soon. You know, it's fun. We were talking about, you know, some of the quarterbacks. And I remember it may have been early in this podcast because we're now four and a half plus years into it, where when you talked about the top QBs in, in the NFL, you were still arriving at some of the same names. You know, listen, Tom Brady was still playing and and, and hadn't even won an, another championship yet at that time with Tampa. And in going back a little bit further, you were still you were talking about Brady, you were talking about Peyton Manning, you know, ten years ago, and it's like the names didn't change. You know, Drew Brees was in there, uh, you know, Ben Roethlisberger w- was in there. Um, it was like the same names for ten, fifteen years, and you kept waiting for okay, who's going to be part of that next generation, truly of, of guys that you say, man, that's a great quarterback, that's a Hall of Fame talent um, or potential Hall of Fame talent. You're seeing that next generation, um, and and then even more added to this next generation, right? I mean, C.J. Stroud, how much fun is he to watch? How good is he? How poised is he? How gifted is he? And then to watch Jordan Love, who was such a controversial selection in Green Bay a few years ago, and now a lot of folks are going, hey, Maybe those Packers knew what they were doing, even if it meant sitting behind Aaron Rodgers for a few years. And a lot of things he does reminds you of Rodgers throwing off his back foot, throwing sidearm, throwing three-quarter. Um, man, he's good. Man, he, he's composed. And, and, and both of those guys have great humility. You can tell their teammates like them, and, and they jump in along with the Josh Allens and, of course, the Patrick Mahomes and the Lamar Jacksons, this this next great, great class of quarterbacks. Of course, Mahomes and Jackson and Allen have been doing it for a while, but but stepping forward this year, C.J. Stroud. Stepping forward this year, Jordan Love. What, what are his numbers? Something like 26 touchdowns, one interception over his last eight, nine weeks. I mean, just crazy stuff. But um, that, was, uh, that was a blast uh, to watch. Troy was talking about schemes offensively. And I think it's the head coach's job, especially if the head coach is the de facto offensive coordinator like here in town with Sean Payton. You have to adjust to your talent. It can't be this is my scheme and I'm going to fit you know a square peg in a round hole. You have to adjust to your talent and understand that there's certain desired talent to run specific schemes. 
but you can't just fall back on this is how I want to run things and not adapt to the talent level or the talent specific talent of certain players, specifically the quarterback. I did want to uh, say that. Uh, as we uh, tape, the Avs are in the midst of uh, of a lengthy road trip. The Nuggets as well. They're going through a, a tough stretch. Uh, the Avs will be without Bal Nichuskin for a period of time. I applaud the organization, and I applaud the leagues now for having a place to go to get help. And we saw it earlier with Sam Gerrard, and I also applaud the athletes that are not afraid now and don't get stigmatized by stepping forward and saying, hey, uh, I, ne- I need some kind of help, uh, whether it's you know mental health um, or some sort of other issue. And it's great that the leagues are doing this, and I wish Val Nechuskin naturally all of the best. Um, and, and hopefully he's able to, like Sam Gerard, get back in, in the not too distant future and be part of what is, a, you know, a terrific avalanche team. That'll do it this week. Next week, we will know whether Todd Helton is a Hall of Famer. My fingers are crossed. I believe he will be. And we can celebrate that uh, a week from now. Uh, hopefully number 17 going into Cooperstown. We'll chat then. Stay well, stay safe. Big thanks again to Troy Rank and uh, big thanks to my man Marky for uh, for doing all the audio and, and all the things behind the scenes. Talk to you again in a few, man. Take care. 